uh, chapter 14 of Saving Faith. The grace of faith, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls, is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts, and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. By this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself, and also apprehendeth an excellency therein above all other writings, and all things in the world, as it bears forth the glory of God in his attributes, the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices, and the power and fullness of the Holy Spirit in his workings and operations. And so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed, and also acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. For the principal acts of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Amen. Well, as far as the structure of the confession goes, Dr. Renahan takes his view or takes his structure and he does kind of impose it uh, on the confession, but I still think it's a helpful structure uh, as we uh, consider the confession and as we consider chapter 14. Uh, but he highlights how chapter 7 through 20 deal with God's covenant. And so chapter 7 gives us the definition, what is a covenant, what does that look like, namely the covenant of grace. And then chapters 14 through 18 deals with man's acts in the covenant of grace. Chapters 10 through 13 deal with God's gifts, so things like effectual calling, justification, adoption, sanctification. It's what God does in us. Uh, But now we come to the things that man does, enabled by God. Man is the one who believes. Man is the one who repents. Man is the one who engages uh, in good works. Man is the one who is preserved by God, who then thus perseveres. And a man also is the one who has assurance. It's what God does in us. It's what we do in light of what God has done for us and by the strength and power of God in us. So God justifies, but we are the ones who believe, even though faith uh, is a gift. And so we are under that doctrine of salvation, soteriology, focusing on the benefits uh, that Christ has purchased for us and how they are now applied uh, by the Holy Spirit in the life of the elect in time and space. It's what we call the ordo salutis uh, or the order of salvation. Now, everyone's conversion story is just a little bit different, but all of these elements are present in your conversion. All these elements are present in your Christian life. So we first of all have effectual calling or regeneration. God works with the word to change your heart. We see that in chapter 10. And then from there, we believe, we look to Christ. We've seen our sin. We look to Christ by faith. We turn from our sin. We repent. We have this change of mind concerning sin and we turn to Christ And then uh, faith then is the instrument by which we receive justification, adoption, and even the start of sanctification as well. And then we continue in the life of faith in our sanctification, uh, perseverance, and then one day God will glorify us. And we see the skeleton of the Ordo Salutis in Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also Glorified. So we're dealing today with saving faith. Now, there are many problems with saving faith. There are many misunderstandings about what saving faith is. Uh, in our modern evangelicalism, uh, often man has divided between uh, the emotions, the heart and the head. Uh, if you want to make me throw up in my mouth, just talk about the heart and the head distinction. It drives me uh, just a little bit nuts. Uh, I haven't said that in a while. I just want to say when I say that stuff, I mean it. Uh, in jest, and I love you. 
but uh, just there is, you know, we have to recognize the faculty of the soul. Uh, we don't distinguish between the head and the heart. We'll see that as we consider uh, saving the principal acts of it uh, in paragraph two. But there is this description, there's this distinguishing the intellect versus the emotion. Uh, also under evangelicalism, sometimes people have this nebulous view. I have to have faith. Well, faith in what? And there is also as well uh, many times that uh, many in the past, sometimes reformed, have made faith a work. Uh, like Richard Baxter had made faith a work. I know people like Richard Baxter because of his practical works, but he makes faith uh, a work. He makes faith the grounds uh, for our justification. Certainly Arminianism makes faith a work, uh, but we recognize faith is a gift that God has given to us. He's changed our heart. He's changed our mind. Uh, he's changed our head. Uh, he's changed our intellect. And it is because of that then we are enabled by the Spirit with the Word uh, to believe on Christ Jesus. So uh, in chapter 14 of the Confession, the Baptist dev divines define saving faith as a gift of God whereby the elect accept, received, and rest upon Christ alone. So the main words there are gift of God, whereby the elect are uh, accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone. Or you can just look at the end of paragraph 2. Christ accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone. Uh, then he goes on to talk about the other benefits, the instrument that faith is for them. But it's a gift uh, that God has given and so we'll look at saving faith under three headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the subject of saving faith, that is, who believes, uh, in paragraph one. Secondly, we'll see the object of saving faith, or what is to be believed, in paragraph two. And then lastly, we will see the nature of saving faith in paragraph three, which deals with what it looks like in our life. So the subject, the object, and the nature. So the subject of saving faith the object of saving faith, and the nature of saving faith. So let's first look at the subject of saving faith uh, in paragraph one, which deals with who believes. And we can also distinguish, uh, when we talk about faith, the act of faith, who is the one that actually does the believing, and the object of faith, the thing that we believe upon. So this paragraph one is dealing with that act. Who is it that actually believes? Who is it that actually engages in the act of faith? And notice we see the recipients in paragraph one. The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe. You cannot choose God unless God first chose you before the foundation of the world. When we're talking about choosing, when we're fighting an Arminian, sometimes we're uh, uh, mixing categories. Sometimes we're not talking about the same time, if you will, because predestination happens where? It happens in eternity. When does faith happen? Faith happens in time and space. And so the assurance that one is elect uh, is based upon whether or not one believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The assurance is ultimately found in Christ, but those who choose Christ uh, are first chosen by God before the foundation of the world. So certainly, chapter 3, there's a lot of connections in the confession. Much like as we read our Bible, the connections between the Old and the New Testament, there's a lot of connections with chapters uh, that came before and chapters that will come after. And so certainly paragraph 3, or sorry, not paragraph 3, chapter 3 deals with our God's decree. And he talks about... Uh, the only those who've been chosen, only those who've been appointed, uh, who've been foreordained uh, and redeemed by Christ, this is ch chapter six, chapter 3, paragraph 6, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by a spirit working in due season, so the appointed time of your conversion, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto, save, uh, unto salvation. So, foreshadowing uh, some of the things we see uh, later on in the confession, especially what we see with saving faith. But even then, it's a grace. It is the grace of faith. We recognize, even though we're talking about how man is the one who believes, nonetheless, we recognize that it's a gift of God. If I were to ask you, where in the Bible does it say explicitly that faith is a gift of God, you would say, Ephesians 2.8. We see very clearly in Ephesians 2.8 where Paul says uh, that faith is a gift. It is not of works, lest anyone should 
boast. And even too, when it comes to this idea of saving faith and the elect and the appointed time in due season, Acts 13, 48, after Paul has preached at Antioch, uh, it says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So you see very clearly there that they were appointed in time and space. They heard the word of God and by God's grace, they believe. So it's a grace that is given. It's based upon the completed work of Christ. Uh, we see this in chapter 8, 8, how he applies the benefits uh, to us. Christ has purchased these things for us. And then he gives them to us uh, by the outpouring of the spirit. So it's the grace of faith. The recipients are the elect. They are enabled by God to believe to the saving of their souls. So we engage in that act of faith. We are the ones who really look to Christ and believe, but it is a gift that is given and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Gordon Clark says, faith is indeed something that we do. It is our own mental activity, but it is an activity that could not have been initiated by any decision of a free will, uh, nor produced by ordinary human striving. Faith is the gift of God. If therefore the Spirit works faith in us, we have faith. If he does not, we don't. And so the grace, uh, the reason they're mentioning grace here in paragraph 1 is uh, in contrast with Pelagianism, which says that man naturally, uh, there's this naturalness in man by which he can save his own soul. But we recognize that man is dead in his sin and he must, it must be a gift that is given. He must be enabled by God's grace to look to Christ. But the act of faith is done by the person. We see this in Acts chapter 16, right? When, the Paul, when Paul tells the Philippian jailer, don't kill yourself, and he says, what does he say? He says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does the Philippian jailer do? He believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but we know it's a work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and certainly in Romans uh, 10, talks about confessing and believing in our hearts. We are the ones who do it, but it is a gift uh, that, that God enables and works in us. To the end, uh, that we have the salvation of our souls. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, and now we have the salvation of our souls, whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls. So we believe it's a grace that is given. We are enabled. And notice the extraordinary agent uh, involved in it. As the Spirit works with us, as the Spirit works with the Word, the internal working, and then we also see the external calling. Uh, but we see is the work of the Spirit of Christ in our hearts. It is the work of the Spirit to, uh, to enable us to believe and look to Christ. The presupposition is total depravity and total inability. Without the work of the Spirit, without the work of the Spirit of Christ, man in his own nature, in his sinful nature, cannot look to Christ, cannot be saved. It must be a supernatural work. That's why effectual calling precedes faith. That's why chapter 10 precedes chapter 14. That's why it's the work of the Spirit to renew our hearts, to change our hearts, to give us a new heart, to pull out that heart of stone and give us that heart of of flesh. Man was born in the state of sin. Certainly chapter 9 is in view with free will. And then we are enabled by God's grace and brought into that state of grace. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that spirit of faith uh, that God works in us by his spirit. So it's the internal working of the spirit. But notice the ordinary means. Notice how God saves, how God communicates and strengthens our saving faith. How do the benefits communicated and applied? How God births and strengthens saving faith, as one writer says. We see it is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. Ordinarily, under most circumstances, it is wrought by the ministry of the word, by the preaching of the word. Doesn't mean someone can't read their Bible and be saved. Doesn't mean you can't share the gospel with your friends. But the primary means was the ministry of the word. It is very clear in Romans chapter 10. That was when we started our key passage. What, were, what was our purpose? What was our goal as a church? Well, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how can they believe on him whom they have not heard? So they have to be heard. Christ has to be heard. Now, that means the heathen in the bush who dies in his trespasses and sins, who's never heard of Christ, they have no excuse because, as we see in Romans 1, God has indicated very clearly in the creation of the world that there is a God. But man must hear it. The gospel is something that must be proclaimed. And so it must be preached. And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sent? So then chapter uh, 10, verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Gordon Clark again says, Historic Protestantism has always made preaching the central part of the worship service because it is by preaching that faith is produced and propagated. The magic of sacramentarianism will not do, nor the aesthetic of good singing. There is a message to be told, and faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. That's why the means of grace is so vital, even when it comes to the saving of sinners. Yes, when people come in, yes, when we come to church, it's primarily for the Christian, but they're coming to a heavenly country. They're coming to Zion, and we want them to hear the glories of Christ and who he is and what he has done. That's why it's good to invite your friends. I can't remember which missionary. I think it's John Patton. That's the one that's in my mind. Uh, but for a year when he was serving and he was you know, engaging in evangelism and preaching, people wouldn't come. Nobody was there. Nobody came. Then finally there was like seven of them. They were just determining what would they do. And so what did they do? He said, we need to each invite a friend. And that's exactly what they did. Doesn't mean we'll have to go out there and preach on the street. But they all invited their friends to church. They invited their friends to come in and hear the preaching of the word of God because that is where evangelism primarily Happens. Again, not saying you can't share with your friends or can't, you know, uh, uh, you know, engage in passing out tracts. That's fine. But the primary place is the, the preaching of the word of God. So it's meant to be for the, the birthing of saving faith. Uh, it's still ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. But it's also increased by the ministry of the word. The public means of grace is how we grow strong. He's going to talk about the weak and the strong Christian in paragraph three, but he also says, uh, talks about the other means by which also, uh, they, sorry, not he, they, by which also and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper, prayer and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. I mean, Peter talks about growing in our faith, doesn't he? In first Peter chapter two, that's one of the uh, the proof text that is there. When Paul is leaving the church at uh, Ephesus and he's concerned, I mean, he talks about the means of grace and what the pastor is supposed to do. And he says in verse 32 of Acts 20, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How did, what, did, what was in Paul's mind? What was Paul's purpose? is so that the church at Ephesus knew that the primary means they would grow would be by the word of God. We have missed that, dear brother. I'm saying we and the church as a whole in the Western world. Sometimes we have forgotten that too, personally. I understand we can grow tired. I understand we can grow weary. I understand all of, all of those things. Trust me, I'm a human. I need to drag myself out of bed. I need to sometimes drag my own self to church, even though I'm the one preaching. But sometimes I have to drag myself to this place. But brethren, the point is, is that we need to appreciate and love the public means of grace. It's how we are strengthened. And there needs to be, as Renahan says, this expectation that God is going to work in the preaching of the word of God. That's why Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. And then also in the administration of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why it's important to be there. It's important to be at the Lord's Supper. It is a means of grace. Again, Christ has purchased something for us, and it's how we are strengthened and grow in it. And so this anticipates chapters 28 through 30. And so the sacraments, uh, Lord's Prayer, baptism, prayer, uh, sorry, uh, Lord's Prayer, uh, what am I saying? Lord's Supper, baptism, and then prayer also can be and is a means of grace as well. But it's a means of grace as we pray God's word back to him. The means of grace is primarily what God does for us. 
It's how God strengthens us. It's how God works in us. When we pray, we pray God's promises back to him. There's a difference between the public means of grace and the private means of growth. I'm not against you praying every day. You should. I'm not against you reading your Bible every day. You definitely should. But the main thing is, don't think I've done my prayer and Bible reading these six other days of the week and then can neglect the Lord's Day. Because the Lord's Day is central. The Lord's Day is primary. Preaching is primary. That's why the pulpit is in the middle of the service, because that is the central thing. That's why we've got three songs, typically. We you know, typically uh, are like 15 to 20 minutes for that opening part, and the main thing is preaching. 40 to 45 to 50, Pastor, Pastor Butler, or 90 minutes, however long we go. But you know, all those th- that is the central thing. Preaching needs to be central. They understood that. They recognized that. And certainly they are trying to highlight that very thing as well. And so uh, other means appointed days of thanksgiving and fasting are mentioned um, in 22.5. Well, what they're talking about there are unusual times, not Christmas time. Sorry, Christmas time is not a means of grace. It can be a fun evangelistic time, uh, but Christmas time is not a means of grace. The Christmas service is They're actually having a Christmas Eve service this year, by the way. Actually, we're going to have two this year, by the way, 1030 and 6. Uh, You can invite all your friends to that service. And I will do a Christmas-themed sermon from Luke. Uh, But the the point is the means of grace is what it means to be the regular means of grace following that regulative principle of worship uh, versus these other days. Now, again, uh, it's not wrong to meditate on those things, meditate on the incarnation, meditate on uh, the resurrection, but we do that every Lord's Day. These days of thanksgiving and fasting are unusual. So the days of fasting, probably when the, an elder is being brought in or some serious or uh, solemn issue that's happening uh, in the church, that's what fasting is for. It's uh, when there's a weariness of the soul, uh, a weighty matter that needs to deal with, uh, needs to be dealt with, uh, that's when fasting happens. And so it's typically unusual. It's not ordinary. And then also days of thanksgiving. Again, a beneficial providence is what Renahan says uh, in his commentary uh, on this, on this uh, chapter. So uh, it is the work of God. It is, we are the ones who believe, we are the ones who receive, we are the ones who uh, receive the benefit, Uh, we are the subjects of the ones uh, who engage in these acts, in this act of faith, Uh, and God strengthens us as we continue to come to the word by faith and be strengthened by it. So that's the subject of saving faith. Let's then look secondly at the object of saving faith in paragraph two. And notice we see Uh, the faith in general, and then we'll see faith especially as it pertains to Christ. But faith in general deals with the Word of God. So certainly chapter 1 is in view. Now when we talk about the difference between Reformed and Evangelical, uh, we have to emphasize and recognize that there's no such thing as what's called a center theology. A lot of people like to ask, what's the main idea of Reformed theology? What do people typically say? predestination, covenant, all those things are vital and important. I think covenant's a good one because covenant is very maximal uh, in, that, in that definition. But what's an evangelical? What's the minimum amount we all have to agree on to just play, you know, play the drums and sing kumbaya? What's the minimum amount? Evangelicalism is minimalism. Reform, we want to be maximal. We want to love the whole counsel of God. We want to love the whole word of God. And certainly that is what they are saying here in chapter 2. And so we see, By this faith a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word of God, for the authority of God himself. Use scripture as God's revelation. Certainly Psalm 119 is all about the revelation of God's word. Psalm 19, also Acts 24. Uh, view scripture, all of it as God's revelation. We cast our souls, we believe it, we come back to it, we, we believe what is said in it. It's not on the reasons of men, but the ground of truth that is in the word of God. Scripture testifies to theology proper, scripture itself, covenants, redemptive history. Again, that whole 
counsel of God is the emphasis. And also apprehendeth an excellency. Uh, this is not in uh, Westminster Confession, but beginning at excellency and going all the way to differently, that comes from First London. And it's connecting us all the way back to London Baptist Confession, Second London, chapters 1 and 2. But it comes from uh, First London uh, to remind us about the whole counsel of God. The excellency there and above all other writings. It's the best book. I mean, chapter 1 also says that as well. Bears forth the glory of God and his attributes. It reveals who God is. It reveals that he is Trinity. It reveals uh, who he is in uh, his being. Uh, We have also, uh, we see as well, the the excellency of Christ in his nature and offices. So who Christ is, what he has done. We've seen that a lot in 1 John. The power and fullness of the Holy Spirit and in his workings. Again, we got missions and processions and all sort of great stuff here in his workings and operations, and so is enabled to cast his soul upon the truth thus believed, and also acteth differently upon that which each particular passage thereof containeth. So we believe what the word says. It is not an implicit faith. Uh, Rome taught that an implicit faith in the church, accepting whatever the church says to be true, without understanding the objective contents of the faith. That's why Rome can say whatever they want sometimes. That's why we want people to be Bereans. You know, certainly, you know, I try to study, I try to learn, I try to, you know, study the word of God, but it's good to be Bereans. You know, the Rome wants to keep the people dumb and then they can control them uh, pretty well. And that, you know, for a long time, uh, the, the Rome was just Latin mass. I mean, people in other parts did not understand what was being said. I mean, how do you keep the people under your control? Well, make sure they don't know anything at all but we you know thankfully the word of god is intelligible thankfully the word of god is clear we need the spirit to understand it uh but we believe what is said we believe it to be true talk to someone about the trainee who's not a christian they'll look at you like cross-eyed because they have no idea what you're talking about well we believe it to be true you know there's one god three persons because you know, nobody denies the Father is God, but then there's many passages that say the Son is God, and there's a few passages that say that the Holy Spirit is God. So what are we supposed to do with that? How do we think through that? There's, there's a majesty about the Word of God, and all of it must be believed. And then notice we see the response to it. We accept the whole counsel of God, because in it uh, there is the blessedness of knowing uh, Christ Jesus and God as he is and how he interacts uh, with the world, how he reveals, sorry, himself with the world, uh, to the world. And so notice the response. We yield obedience to the commands. This is John fifteen fourteen. We do what God says. Faith embraces the commands of God, and we do what God says. We don't do our own ways. We don't trust our own ways. We trust in what God has said. Here's what the, the way of the sinner is hard. I mean. Solomon says that very clearly. You watch someone who's really just continuing to sin and sin and sin, and you watch their life go down the drain. It's sad to watch. It's a sad thing to watch, dear brother. But you recognize that the way of the sinner is hard. But God's ways are good. As redeemed saints, as we seek to honor God by the power of the Spirit, which we have, we are called to uh, embrace and obey what God has commanded us to do. So we yield obedience to the commands. But also notice we tremble at the threatenings. Brother, I always want to be careful with those who are sensitive souls, but the sensitive soul will tremble at the threatenings. One who is concerned about their salvation will be concerned about their eternal life. And so they hear the threatenings. If you don't believe on Christ, you'll die in your trespasses and sins. If you don't, they're, they're going to be concerned about that. Those are all good things. They're going to think, I've struggled, and I've sinned, and I've battled, and am I a... Those are good things to think about. Because we see that those in, you know, Revelation 22, that the idolater, the adulterer, they're all going to be outside the the city of God. And so they might be starting to go, but I, I struggle with sin, I have all these idols, and we remind them to look to Christ, because that is where our assurance lies, not in ourselves, but it's a good sign when someone's trembling. It's a good sign when someone is concerned because one who is not concerned about their salvation will not tremble at the threatenings. So faith obeys, faith trembles, and faith also embraces the promises. So uh, John 15, 14, with faith obeys, 
Faith trembles, Isaiah 66, and faith embraces, Hebrews 11.13. I mean, the patriarchs embraced the promises of God. That's what faith is, brethren. It's embracing the promises of God. It's taking God at his word and trusting in what he has said. It is embracing what he, uh, what he has said in the scripture. I promise to never leave you nor forsake you. Do you embrace that? I promise to comfort you. Do you embrace that? I promise to help you. Do you embrace that? If you struggle with sin, confess it. You'll be forgiven. Do you embrace that? God will help us. God is good. God is gracious. And we receive those promises by faith. So there's this general uh, reference to faith as it pertains to the whole counsel, the whole word of God, uh, which is what we see in that first uh, portion there. First, really two-thirds of paragraph two. But the principal acts or fides specialis, belief in Christ, uh, is the principal act. And so the writers say, but the principal act of saving faith have immediate relation to Christ. So we believe the word of God, but the principal act is believing on Christ. Mm -hmm. Believe on Jesus and you shall be saved, Acts chapter 16. Certainly Galatians 2.20, we rest upon him. He is the one who loves us. He is the one who died for us. John 1.12, we believe upon him. We receive him. Uh, and so we see its immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace, by the quality and the benefit and the terms of the covenant of grace. And again, that's important. This is where we see that object of our faith. The general object is the word of God, but the principal and primary object is Christ. When we call someone to believe, we want them to believe on someone. Believe in someone. Believe in who he is. That is where salvation lies. Again, sometimes people speak today about faith in this nebulous sort of way. You just need to have a little faith. In what? In whom? What, like, what do you have in faith in? We have to have faith in something. Faith in someone. Shaw says, and we know the object of that is the Redeemer and Mediator. Shaw says, this faith consists in believing the testimony of God concerning his son and the life that is in him for men. It respects him in his person and whole character according to the revelation made of him and according to the measure of knowledge a person has of him as thus revealed, especially as now manifested and more clearly exhibited and freely offered in the gospel. It views him in his supreme deity as Emmanuel, God with us as vested with all saving offices so as to bear in the highest sense the name Jesus or Savior, Lord or King, the great high priest, Messiah, or the Christ, and is exercising all his offices for the benefit of mankind's sinners with whom he entered into near affinity by the assumption of their nature that he might be capable of acting the part of a surety in obeying, dying, meriting, and mediating for them. It is Christ in all his glory. Why is John writing that you might believe in the name of the Son of God and believing you may have eternal life? So faith is this, this believing on Christ. And there's many different uh, terms used in Scripture. Coming, we use them all the time. Coming, fleeing, looking, receiving, eating, drinking, to look to him. Again, connection with Scripture in general, about believing the Scriptures to be true, but they are true because they are the word of Christ. And so really it is this consideration that the gospel is true and persuaded of its reality. The traditional elements in saving faith that the Puritans spoke about uh, are notitia, knowledge, ascensus or assent, and fiducia. Here's how I think we explain that. There are the facts, notitia. There's the understanding of the facts. Christ did live, die, and rise again. But do you believe it? That's the last part, fiducia. Do you believe that Christ lived, died, and rose again? Really, it's the movement of the whole man. It starts with the intellect, and it is the movement of the will, the whole faculties of the soul, uh, in when it comes to you know, making this choice uh, to choose the true, uh, the true Savior. Again, it's a choice that is wrought by the Spirit. It's a gift of God. And again, man does choose God because of what the Savior has done. Again, it's that point where I always feel like I have to explain myself. I don't 
feel like I should always have to explain myself, but if I feel like I use the word choice or choose, people are going to think I'm an Arminian. I'm not when I say that. But again, we have a changed heart. We have a renewed mind. And it's by the Spirit. We hear the Word of God. We judge it. We make a judgment call as the Spirit is working within us and we believe upon Christ. As the will know, or the intellect knows, the will goes. Because people can hear the Word. People can, okay, I get what it's being said. That Yeah, this guy uh, years ago arose from the dead. I don't believe it. So you must, there's the facts. Do you know the facts? And have you believed the facts? Because it's considering what is true. Certainly this is clear in Hebrews 11. You can turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1. As the writer goes on to talk about the whole hall of faith and the men who aren't looking at us, they're looking at Christ. They're not cheering us on. I think I've heard that before. They're all cheering us on. They're all watching us and we're all running that race. They're all standing in this. That's not what's happening. They've looked to Christ Jesus. That's the point. They all look to him. And so what do we do as we run that race? We, we look, they're not looking at us. We're looking, uh, they're looking at Jesus and we're looking at Jesus as well. Or we ought to. But chapter 11, 1. Now faith is the substance, not assurance. This word here is never used for assurance, ever, in the Bible. Substance. Faith is the substance. There is this evidence here. There's this confidence. There's this, uh, uh, we believe on what is true. The substance of the things hoped for. The evidence of the things not seen. Faith is the inscripturated word of God, or uh, faith, uh, it's, um, there are these witnesses who apprehended the promise uh, unseen realities through divine testimony. It is something to be true. There's evidence of it that is clear. The evidence of the things not seen, and we believe it. So there are things that are in our minds, things that are actually true that one believes upon. Faith is the substance. Here is the substance. Here is Christ. Here is what he has done for us. There's the F. Do you believe it? Here is the truth. Do you believe upon him? And so that's all very clear, too, I think, in uh, uh, with, the, with what the, the writers are saying. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him. Do you accept? Do you receive? Do you rest upon Christ? That is important. The principal acts. Accepting, receiving, and resting upon him alone. And notice the benefits. Again, it's him alone for, for justification and sanctification and eternal life. Because again, the Arminian sects, the Richard Baxters of the world say, faith is formed by love. Or the Ed, uh, Jonathan Edwards sometimes say, faith is formed by love. Or the Romans, Roman Catholics say, faith is formed by love. Love is an outworking of our faith. Love is an evidence of our faith. Love is never the grounds for our faith, ever. Love is never the grounds for our standing before God. Faith is never the grounds for our standing before God. And that's what Baxter is saying. The act of faith is what is imputed. Our act of faith is what is imputed to us. Whereas the Bible is very clear in Romans 4, it's Christ's righteousness that is imputed to us, that we believe upon. Not our act of faith. That's why in chapter 11, I mean, they go full scale assault against uh, Baxter here. Now, chapter 11, paragraph 1, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's act of obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So it is in Christ alone, it is complete Shaw again says, he trusts in Christ for salvation, not only from wrath, but also from sin, not only for salvation from the guilt of sin, that's what justification does for us, but also from its pollution and power, which is what sanctification does in us, not only for happiness hereafter, but also for holiness here. So again, justification, resting upon Christ, receiving that uh, uh, justification through faith, sanctification through faith, eternal life, through 
faith. Again, faith is an instrument of justification, not the grounds for it. By virtue of Christ is the object that we lay hold of uh, to receive these benefits. So that's the object of saving faith. Let's then look thirdly at the nature of saving faith. What does it look like? So there is temporary and saving. And so notice we see that in paragraph 3. This faith, although it be different in degrees, there can be some people who are strong and there can be some people who are weak. And they really do truly have saving faith. But there can be those who don't have faith at all. This faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong, yet it is in the least degree of it, different in the kind or nature of it, as is all other saving grace from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. Temporary believers, they're ones who never actually believed in the first place. It lacks duration, it lacks conviction of the truth, and it lacks saving faith. The principal act, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ. We see this with Simon the Magician, don't we, in Acts chapter 8? We see this with Judas. We see this with the Antichrist in 1 John 2. They went out from us, but they were not of us. There are those who might look nice. They might sound good. They might feel, seem like they're in. They've, they have tasted the benefits in the sense that they've come to church. They've, they've seen people uplifted and encouraged, but they never actually laid hold of that which is right and true. They've never actually laid hold of Christ. And so they have a temporary faith. It is not an actual faith at all. That's what common grace is here, not common grace in the sense that uh, God is good and the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. But people really think of the parable of the sower. As the word goes out, there are four seeds that are scattered, right? Only one, the seed is the word of God, only one is actually saving. All others are not. All the other three are not. Whether it's on the path, whether it's in the bushes, whether it's uh, in, the, in the shallow root, all three of those, the word goes forth. Someone seems, oh, look at that. They're great. They're here. They're, you know, that's why I want to see things over a long period of time. That's why you know, pastors need to be time-tested. <laughs> you know, that's why you know, baptism, even then, you know, uh, we, we wait some time. We're not like the first century church. Some people are like, oh, they get saved. They get... There was the apostolic age during Acts. We need to have some time to see that people evidence certain things, not over a, that long of a time, but nonetheless, over some period of time, not you got saved, you know, there, there needs to be some of that involved because, you know, even then we can get, get it wrong. And that's what discipline is for uh, on the back end of things. But the point is, is that people can come in. They, it sounds like they're in. It sounds like they know, but they've never actually laid hold of Christ. So lack duration and conviction uh, of the truth. So there can be temporary believers, uh, but they are in no way... Uh, they, they are very, sorry, I would say they are very different from even one with weak faith. I mean, Romans 14 talks about a one with weak faith, right? The weak faith, the one who only eats vegetables, the one who can't enjoy steak uh, is, the, is the weaker brother in that instance. The one who gets easily offended, the Pharisee, uh, is technically the weaker brother. That's not usually how we think of it, do we? I think the Pharisee who just restricts himself from everything, oh, they must be... The, no, they get easily offended by everything. They're actually the weaker brother. You know, we ought not to be offended by everything. We ought to be able to take the things that God has given us and be able to enjoy them aright, and, uh, but also have the wisdom to know when there is a weaker brother and, and uh, to recognize and watch out for them. So there, there's weak faith. I mean, there's little faith. Not, uh, Jesus says that. I mean... There's this, the milk imagery in First Peter. We want to grow uh, in, in our faith. Uh, that's the hope, isn't it? We can have weak faith. We can have a, you know, a trembling faith. We can have a, 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 you know, there's degrees of faith. And so, um, but they're, they're different than a temporary believer. And then it can be increased. Uh, faith can increase. We grow in faith. And therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets the victory. Isn't that a, good, a wonderful assurance? It always gets the victory. We can be temporary weakened. That's why sanctification is usually, I, you know, I always joke it's like this for me, but it's usually like this, you know, because that's the weakening, right? We're assailed, but hopefully we're kind of making our way this way. Hopefully we're trusting in God more. Hopefully we're embracing 
the promises more. Hopefully we're studying the word of God and understanding that all of it is God-breathed and we can be glean good things from it, from what God is trying to communicate. We can grow uh, in all of those areas, but we can have weakening times. Uh, even strong Christians are going to have times of being assailed and weakened and sinning uh, in this fallen world, in this fallen, this intermediate time before, uh, um, as we're still in this fallen part, as we haven't died yet, uh, as we still deal with remaining corruption is what I'm uh, trying to say. Uh, but we can be strengthened, but we get the victory, growing up in many to the attainment, growing up in many, not all, but in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ. So this anticipates chapter 18. This is important. Faith is not the same as assurance. Sometimes the most unassured Christian still has a very strong faith. Why? Because they're so unassured, they always go to the Word of God. They're so unassured, they always have to be in church. I can't stay away because I'm so unassured. I need my Christ. I need my God. I need to be before Him. I need the means of grace. I need the Word of God to feed me. And so they might never have this full assurance. And chapter 18 talks about the full assurance is ultimately in Christ Jesus his finished and completed work. We can have the fruit. The outward working of our life is an evidence. The inward testimony of the Holy Spirit. All these things can be assurances for us. Waldron says, A sinner goes to Christ because he believes he is not saved. Not because he believes he is. We go to Christ because we need help. We go to Christ because we need aid. That's what he's trying to communicate there. But we certainly see in Colossians that we ought to continue to grow in our faith. We see it in First. And Second Peter, you know, we grow in godliness. We grow in the things of heaven. We press on, as Paul says, and as the writing of Hebrews says. But especially Colossians, because we did look at that. Paul says in chapter 1, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. We grow in the knowledge of Christ. And in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So there is the things we learn that you may walk worthy. You hear what we need to know. We need to know uh, what, we ought, how, what we ought to do. We make a judgment call and then we move towards that. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. God will do that. God will strengthen us with his word. God will help us with his word. God will save us, uh, save people through his word. But that's why we need to appreciate and love the means of grace and grow in it, always looking to Christ. Hebrews 12.1, Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. The goal is that we persevere into maturity in this part of the world, time that we grow hopefully we are maturing hopefully we are uh less salty that's an unfortunate thing for me because i feel like i get more salty the older i get do people just get more cynical the older they get they've just been in this fallen world for so long and they've seen all the sadness and sorrow uh the hope is we grow into maturity but it doesn't always happen does it but that's the goal that's the that's what we are called to do we're called to be faithful be faithful and trust in Christ. Trust in Christ to help us to be faithful, always looking to him, who is both the author and finisher of our faith. Well, we'll conclude with a few lines of application. Uh, I usually like to do that with some doctrinal uh, sections rather than just doing my typical application throughout. Uh, but again, for the Christian, when it comes to faith, faith is lifelong. It's not in by faith and remain in by works. It's always faith. You know, the means of grace, uh, love it, appreciate it, be there. It is what God has said in the scriptures, how faith uh, he causes us to be made alive. Psalm 119, he causes us uh, to be comforted. Psalm 119 talks about the word of God. It's the word of God. For some reason, God is pleased to meet his people. Even though the word, whatever the passage is, I've noticed this. People are in different places and they'll come up to, up to me and something different stuck out from the passage. Like God really does speak to his people. And I really do believe that. I have my saltiness. I, there's a lot of things that drive me bananas. And I have my times I get tired and 
my views on what church is, but I really honestly believe, I can say with half a heart, that I really do believe that God really does work in, in the Word. I say half a heart because I ain't perfect. I know we like to say wholeheartedly, but let's be honest, we're never wholehearted, are we? Can I say three quarters of my heart? 90% of my heart? 90% of my I really do believe that God does work in His Word, and He really will strengthen you. He will comfort you. He will help you. He will give you the aid that you need uh, as we hear him, as he speaks to us, as he ministers to us uh, through the word. So faith still remains objective. Believing upon Christ, let's grow into maturity. Uh, Believing in the someone, believing in Jesus, believing in his word, yielding to the commands, willingly trembling at the threatenings and embracing the promises that that is what we, that we do as we look to Christ. So it is the Christian application, but there is also saving application. Faith is necessary for salvation. Sinners must believe upon Christ. Sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Spurgeon says, unbelief will destroy the best of us, but faith really does save the worst of us. And I'll close with that story about Roland Hill and the pigs. Do you know who Roland Hill is? And have you heard his pig story? Roland Hill was a preacher in the 1600s, 1700s. Uh, and he looked outside one day and saw the farmer leading his pigs to the slaughter. And he says this, For a few crumbs they would follow me to their death. Will you believe and follow Satan for a few crumbs of this world's pleasures to your eternal life, or eternal death? Will you believe in and follow to eternal life the Savior who said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Christ really is mighty to save. Have we believed upon him? Have we looked to him? And do we continue to look to him as the author and perfecter of our faith? Well, let's pray. Well, Lord our God, we are thankful for your goodness towards us. And we are thankful that faith really is a gift that you've given to us. We know that you're the one who has given us a new heart and a new mind, that you've enabled us to believe, that you've worked by your Spirit. And we are thankful that we are a people of the Spirit, that we do not know where the the wind blows, but we know the Spirit works. And we are thankful that your Spirit works with the Word, that you have really saved sinners, that you've really brought us and called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And you really do strengthen us. And so often, O Lord, we can be forgetful and neglectful, Uh, of the means of grace so often we can have weak faith and lack faith but we ask and pray that we would grow mature in our faith that we would grow more and more assured in our faith that we would trust in you all the more that as we are more assured in our faith that it would not cause us to be lazy but that it would cause us to pray all the more it would cause us to be under the means all the more we are truly grateful for your word thank you for Uh, your word as it has gone forth in this part of the world, as it's gone forth uh, with free grace in our church and many others as well. And we ask and pray that we would just be faithful to the end, faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, uh, faithful to your promises as you have been so faithful to us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Help us all to live by faith.